You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 18th of January 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello, it's Saturday the 18th of January. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Georgina Godwin. World leaders are packing their bags ahead of the World Economic Forum in Davos on Tuesday. Climate change is top of the agenda, but can we expect results? Plus, automation is the way of the future. Just don't tell the striking transport workers across France. We'll look at how technology is bringing about unwelcome outcomes for some. All that and the day's newspapers too. Monocle's House View starts now. Good morning and welcome to Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin, joined by my guests this morning, the journalist and communications consultant Simon Brook and Adam Labore, who's also a journalist and the author most recently of Koshut Square, which was the Times crime book of the month. And in fact, we're going to be talking about crime and thrillers a little bit later on. Welcome to both of you. Um, now, there is a classic thing that people do before you start an interview, and I've decided that I want to start recording these because they are so interesting. And that is, you ask people for the sound check what they had for breakfast. And I actually am finding that this is such an intimate question, actually, because it's not you. People come in and they're like primed to talk about their political view or whatever it is. And then they have to really think about what it was they had for breakfast. And it's a real insight into people's lives, their morning routine. and all. The... Simon, what did you have for breakfast? I'm really embarrassed to say, actually, I had two slices of cold pizza and some strawberries, which is a <laughs> That's really, that's really that's good. Terrible, isn't it? Oh, that is terrible. Open the fridge. That's all I could see. And, Why don't you heat uh, but, them up? Yeah, I couldn't be bothered to do that. But I have to say, as a journalist, yes, I, I have that same question. And they quite often people who are not used to doing interviews will then look at you, won't you? Like, is this a trick question? Exactly. Why are you asking me this? Yeah. You think, no, tell me how you got here. Tell me what your name is. Anything just to get a yeah. sound level. But but now I really love the answer to that question because and also people are afraid of judgment. I find that's the main thing. They, they don't judged, want to tell you yeah. because they feel judged. I do judge you. I I have to say, <laughs> two slices Damn of me. I think it's really impressive. <laughs> Adam, what about you? Um, I didn't actually have any breakfast, sorry. Uh, I can't eat when I first wake up in the morning. So I'll probably, well, I'm having my nice bun now, but that's about it. We are having very, very nice, nice buns, buns now, yeah. aren't we? Yeah. Cardamom and cinnamon, Delicious. we're kind of mixing it up and having Absolutely. a bit of both. Yeah. Uh, should we talk about Davos? I think that's probably sure. where, where we're meant to go next. So love it or hate it, we somehow managed to build up an expectation for the World Economic Forum every year. Now, uh, it's presented as a serious talking shop, but how serious is it? I mean, we've been doing a whole uh, a series here on Monocle 24, building up to Davos and I know that we'll have a lot of coverage from there. Our own Jessica Bridger is there too. She'll be reporting from there. But in our Winter Weekly uh, publication, we have had a look at 50 ideas for Davos, a manifesto for the World Economic Forum. So we asked 50 of the world's sharpest thinkers a simple question, which is basically, what should they be doing? How, how, how should we tackle Davos? Two big themes seem apparent to me. One is that, um, I, I guess it's summed up in what Carol Walker has to say. She says, take it on tour. You might return to the Swiss Alps with a better understanding of how policies affect the lives of ordinary people. And, and Yossi Meckelberg uh, uh, reiterates that. He says, um, I, I'd rather see this gathering take place closer to where the affected people 
people live. So there is this idea that there's this kind of rarefied gathering in this beautiful alpine setting, but actually all of the troubles in the world are nowhere near that. Can we understand deserts when we're actually in Davos, Simon? Well, there is a suggestion here, actually, um, that uh, we should um, indeed uh, look at deserts. But, um, yeah, I think, um, yes, that Lewis Lukins, uh, one of the a, a former US diplomat who you asked, uh, says, despite the snow at Davos, focus on sand and trees, support international efforts to stop the desertification of the Sahel in Africa. Um, but certainly I think I like Carol Walker's idea as well of taking it on tour, going round to see some of the parts of the world who, uh, you know, who do feel that Davos doesn't know or care about them. Um, I know that the it's, it's approaching its 50th anniversary, isn't it? But And, and Switzerland does make sense in many ways. But on the other hand, it is for many people literally the uh, archetype of the very affluent uh, society far removed from other people's experience. Whether you could go to sort of Bradford, a deprived city in the north of England or parts of the Midwest or something like that, I don't know whether the billionaires would be able to go there, but perhaps you could have those sort of mini Davos roadshows in between the main Davos meetings just to, to show, you know, that there is some engagement with ordinary people. No, absolutely. What do you think, Adam? Well, I think this uh, Davos, like the Bilderberg Group, uh, is a very antiquated format. It, it's a post-war thing from the uh, dates back to the idea that here's the great and good, the, you know, the secretaries of states, the prime ministers, the foreign ministers, the powerful bankers and business people, they're going to meet and decide our futures and discuss the great issues of our time while us poor proles and everyday people sort of accept their little gobbits of wisdom as they trickle down to us. I think it's a totally outmoded uh, means of communicating. I think... Um, first thing that should be done with Davos is that civil society and wider society should have some input into it. I think it's a, it's a circular talking shop where a self-perpetuating and self-selected elite talk, uh, just kind of reassure each other and give each other back rubs and massages okay. that they're doing something about climate change when really these people are the cause of a lot of the problems in the first place. Well, so I'm course, not a fan. Yeah. I mean, cli- climate... <laughs> really between the lines. Yeah. 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 But how do you really feel? Yeah. <laughs> um, but apart but... from that, it's great, yeah. <laughs> Um, of course, climate change is, is one of the big items on the agenda. But, uh, I mean, I needn't point out the enormous hypocrisy of cli- private jets exactly. arriving. It's like that Google summit that was in um, that was in Italy when uh, all, everybody arrived by private jets, in, including parts of our royal family. I mean, you've got to walk the walk if you're going to talk the talk. Mm. 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 Um, but uh, at least it's being discussed. You know, people are mm. taking it seriously. They are sitting down together and, and having meaningful conversations about mm. this, as a lot of our correspondents in this piece in our in our winter weekly point out um, here's one we can all take cloth bags to the supermarket 70% of our emissions come from the top 100 companies mm-hmm. so this is about really industry talking to itself that those those business people need to be deciding what to mm-hmm. do uh, well that's a good thing obviously if we're going to use cloth bags uh, or at least use the same plastic bag but why do we need to have Davos to you know these these things are well known it's not a great Insight. I mean, what's mm-hmm. what's the point of all these people meeting together in such a rich and hyper secure place and telling the rest of us what to do? I think yeah. the challenge for them is to say, yes, we know we are part of the problem. We are the manufacturers. Um, you know, we we've created this situation, but we also have to be part of the solution. You know, we have the technology, green tech. We have the the money to invest in in new, uh, as I say, green technology. We've got the supply chains. We've got the customer base. You know, whatever you feel, Greta Thunberg and others, uh, we 
need to and we want to make some contribution to making the world a better place, to cutting carbon emissions, tackling climate change, reducing plastic bag usage. I think they've got to make it. They've got to be honest and say yes. We admit we were contributors to this problem, but given our power and our reach, we really need to be, and we want to be, as I say, mm. part of the solution. I, th I, I think it's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's for sure it's great that they are taking on these issues. I mean, it would be far worse if they were in a bubble saying this is, you know, climate change isn't happening and we don't need to do anything. But what Simon highlighted is a very good point, is that this needs to be devolved. OK, if you're going to have this rolling annual circus, it's got to get out of the Swiss mountains. It's mm. got to go to Bradford. It's got to go to Alabama. It's got to go to Bangalore. It's mm. the, There's no point in it just being a set static thing each year in the same place at the same time. You can't deal with global issues in one place. You've got to move around the world. You've got to see what's happening. And you've got to bring in contributions from the bottom up the real people whose lives are affected by these issues. Mm. One uh, really, uh, I, I thought, important contribution here came, comes from Kevin Rudd, who is, of course, the former Australian Prime Minister. He says, invest in a collective project to deal with our carbon challenge. If we can throw all those resources at putting somebody on the moon, it shouldn't be beyond us to do the same here. Well, of course, Australia hugely in the news because of climate change. And I mean, Rudd's government didn't take much action on it either, did it? It's interesting, isn't it, that uh, Australia, one of the biggest, I think, if not the biggest exporter of, of coal, of carbon fuel or whatever, has now been suffering, I think, probably in the developed world, some of the worst devastation which can be connected to uh, climate change. And yet I'm not sensing that um, certainly the, the, uh, the, the Australian prime minister hasn't said we need to do something. I mean, he's, he knows he has to support the Australian coal uh, industry and so I think um, even there there isn't uh, you know within the country itself there isn't um, a great connection between the devastation they've seen and what could be causing it i.e. their own uh, carbon uh, fuel production but perhaps the rest of the world is taking even more notice I think aren't they as, a, as, as I say when we see a developed world country suffering such devastation because of uh, uh, climate change. Yeah, absolutely we should move on and talk about automation now because that of course is another topic on the minds of some people in Davos, artificial intelligence. And that's not just smart speakers or your Spotify playlist. Uh, AI is leading the boom uh, in the automation of roles that were once filled by humans. So it's an issue being felt in France right now. Transport workers are among many people who are striking across the country. And despite the freeze on the metro network in Paris, two lines have been unaffected thanks to driverless technology. Well, you've just come back from there. Yes, I, absolutely, Georgina. Working in Paris um, this week and I have to say it, the, the metro was something of a battleground. In fact I was on one line and there were two women fighting at one point and I, I was actually quite envious because I thought how come you've got enough room to fight? I couldn't <laughs> What were they fighting about? I, I just said Elimelad, she's sick. I think it was a, it was a, a, well no seats but they were out of the question. Mm. I think it might have just been that crush of people. But yeah it was interesting line to, one. To be fair I do want to punch almost <laughs> everyone on the <laughs> it's, part of, it's part and parcel of being a <laughs> commuter isn't it? But yeah line one working absolutely fine. What was interesting I thought was that I've never seen so many Metro staff on the platforms helping people, directing people, giving advice, trying to tell people when the next Metro would arrive. And I think that's an interesting illustration of the effect that AI is having, because if you've got people, if you've got computers, technology driving the trains, then in an ideal world, you could take those people out from the driver's cab and actually have them on the platform helping people. And another example, I was talking to teasing a friend of mine because I was saying, well, who's a lawyer? And I was saying artificial intelligence is going to put you out of 
business, isn't it? Because it will technology will be able to not only read but also write contracts as well. And he was saying, oh no, the idea is that while the technology is doing the donkey work or whatever, that gives us the opportunity to sort of do the the human the stuff, the thinking stuff, the thinking stuff, the interpersonal mm. skills, the big picture stuff that the technology can't do. Mm. There's a new report out, in fact, and uh, apparently one of the advantages of the use of automation would be to allow workers to focus on value-adding activities. So the ultimate goal, I suppose, would be a, a four-day working week. Technology would enable productivity gains to achieve the same amount of work but in a shorter period and give that time, crucially, give that time back to employees to explore their creative size. You could spend more, more time with your family for those of us that have the least <laughs> desire to, to do so. <laughs> you could learn new... I love you, darling. Uh, learn new skills outside of the workplace. Um, in uh, in um, uh, Japan, there was a, a Microsoft trial recently. It led to a 40% increase in productivity. So, I mean, there are clear arguments. Yeah, that was very interesting, that Microsoft trial, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it really shows that, that, that you can... It doesn't necessarily mean unemployment. No, it yeah. doesn't. And also, I think, especially in corporations, a lot of people spend a, um, a good part of their day working out where their position is in the corporation and how they're going to protect it and who's coming up and who's coming down and what's the politics. So if you felt a bit more secure that you didn't actually have to worry, you only had to work four days a week, that AI was doing a fair bit of your work, but you were secure in your job. And you could really focus on your job and not worry too much about the new trainee and the fact you didn't get invited to the executive dining room this week, but you might do next week and and actually focus on what you need to do. Mm -hmm. There's another survey which is saying that the Netherlands is the EU's most prepared country when it comes to automation. And Slovakia... It's either going to be the Netherlands or the Swedes. Those Northern Europeans, they're always good at planning. Uh, Slovakia is the least ready. But what's quite interesting, I mean, it's it's talking, I mean, the point you make, Simon, about sort of how the the low-skilled jobs will, will, will fall away. But the point is, who wants their drinks served by a robot? You don't want to be leaning over the bar counter going, and then she left me. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> to a robot. <laughs> to a computer. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> An algorithm that has planned some sort of response to, you know, if asked about that or something. Yeah, well, you'd have to program it like uh, like Shiri, wouldn't you? You'd have a, ro- you know, a, a Shiri bartender. You know, that could, yeah. that could I'm very sorry pain. to hear that. You know, <laughs> what can I get you? Would you like a double next time? Yes. But it's interesting, yeah. isn't it, if jobs like bartender, like hairdresser, I mean, yes, you could probably create a machine that could cut hair or something, but not one who can ask you, are you going no. anywhere and nice I think tonight when you've been on holidays, you know? Yeah, people like to go to those places with a human contact. Yeah, don't they? completely. Yeah. So I think those jobs actually yeah. could be... I mean, also, you know, we've, we've just had some work done on our garden or whatever, and I was talking to the guy who was doing it, and we were saying, I can't imagine... Obviously, you've got machines that can, that can dig up the soil or something, but you... I can't imagine technology that could look at the garden and say, well, actually, that tree should go there, that shrub should go there, that rose isn't very happy there sort of thing. So it will be interesting to see those jobs that have such a human element that they are protected from the technological yes. revolution. Mm. Now, a, lo- a lot of these AI stories, of course, are taking up, taken up in the, in the weekend papers. Uh, one of the big ones is Huawei. This is the debate that's been going on, well, for a long time, but this week it blew up here in Britain because uh, Americans sent a team of advisors who said uh, to the British that actually really, really bad idea to use Huawei. This is, of course, the Chinese uh, tech giant. But has it gone too far? Can we row back from from what Huawei's already given us? I mean, some of the papers uh, are uh, talking about that. 
Um, yeah, it does seem it, very difficult indeed, actually. Um, There's the, 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 a story in the Times today, removing all of Huawei 5G tech would cost the economy billions, is the claim here. And it is that question of whether we're so far in here that, uh, that uh, you know, any kind of extraction would cause real inconvenience or whatever. Um, I think the problem is also, is, is that there's just this concern, isn't there, that what kind of, what will the, the wicked Chinese be doing? Will they, you know, if they introduce this technology, will, will they, they be, be spying us? all our data? Uh, absolutely, yeah. that sort of thing. So, um, the, yeah, the Times has a story about that. And then also another story on the same page, EU considering a ban on facial recognition systems. And I think there's a, as well as the technology element here, there's a theme, isn't there, about the convenience on the one hand. Huawei will give us great 5G tech. Yes. Um, facial recognition will really help with crime and things like that. On the other hand, there's also the privacy element. And, and in both cases, you know, how do you balance yeah, the Yeah, it two? ties into, a, you know, it's the same narrative. Also, if you look at what's happening in China with the way that they use facial recognition and have this social capital concept that uh, if you're you know, a sufficiently bad citizen, you have certain rights removed. And, and of course, what's happened with the Uyghurs, the, uh, re the deportation and placing them into work or detention camps, however you want to describe them. Uh, yeah, there's a, lo a lot of concern about that. And Huawei is a large state company and people are concerned that it's, you know, it seems unrealistic to say there's no links with the Chinese government there. They're connected, but, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, but at the yeah. same time, Yes, they've already built in. So yeah. this is a decision, you know, that should have been taken a long, long time ago as to whether or not they're going to be allowed into the system or not. And some sort and, of coordination as well, I think, where we've got this difference between the US and the UK, very yeah. different approaches, haven't they? Yes, absolutely. But I think also it's also an opportunity for Boris to say, to to show I'm not, you know, I'm not Donald Trump's poodle here. You know, we're not going to just roll over and do whatever they want which is always an issue in British pol in British domestic politics. So. Mm, perhaps not his poodle, maybe more like his spaniel. Yeah. <laughs> Some other yeah. Slightly yeah. less compliant breed. Yeah, yeah. or well, his terrier. Yeah, but uh, yeah, we're going to stand up Choose to your the, yeah. We're going to stand up to the Americans. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, uh, staying, staying with... Um, uh, what are we talking? Technology is the yes. word I'm looking for. Tech, staying with, uh, with tech. Um, I mean, a, a lot about it going on in the papers today. Uh, as we say, Huawei, uh, facial recognition. Uh, we then look at what's happening in Hong Kong. Of course, facial recognition, people wearing masks there so that they can't then be targeted. Um, uh, I think that's, a, that's quite a, a big part of this. Uh, and then going on to just in, in the Times here, fantastic story. And this is one... I know that you are uh, very much involved in, Adam, not this particular story, but this, this area. Uh, and this is Lee Child, who is a thriller writer. Jack, creator of Jack Reacher, yeah. Um, Sold millions. Million, I mean, he is really one of the world's best-selling authors, yes. isn't he? Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, he um, uh, is about to judge the Booker Prize. But... Judging the Booker Prize takes quite a lot of work. Uh, and I think he's figured out he's not going to have time to do that and continue writing his novels. So... His brother's going to take over. Which is extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's very, very interesting. Because, yeah, we've seen when uh, a writer's passed away, like, um, and, and their protagonist, their hero, is passed on to someone else. So Sophie Hanna is now writing the, the Poirot books and has done Agatha Christie um, but the idea that someone's a writer still alive and hands over his hero protagonist to somebody else, and that somebody else is his brother, 
is is almost like a short story in itself, really. Mm. I mean, to be fair, his brother is a writer. Yeah, his brother is a writer. He's not a plumber. I'll have a go. No, he is. He is a writer, but it's it's yeah, it's a very strange thing to do. But it is it's handing someone millions, isn't it? Because yeah. this is an incredibly wealthy franchise. It I mean, is. It's just but what a responsibility as well. I it mean, is. I, I think however good a writer you would be, it, people are, are going to judge it, aren't they? And of course, the chances are, if they've if they've read through Lee Child's, you know, Jack Reacher series, they yeah. are probably going to come to, um, you know, to Andrew Child, the brother, uh, to his uh, effort with some skepticism, aren't they? Well, they, uh, I think they're going to scour it with big thing. Oh, that, you know, I know this. Jack would never say that. He wouldn't do that. Yeah, exactly. They'll say, "Oh, that's completely unrealistic. He never, he'd never do that. He'd do this." And 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 they'll they'll second guess everything. Mm. So, I mean, Stephen King collaborates with his son uh, Joe Hill, and lots of. I mean, as you say, Sophie mm. Hannah's taken mm. on Agatha Christie's mantle, mm. and in fact, mm. you can listen to her on uh, Meet the Writers, uh, Sophie Hannah's uh, interview where she talks about that. And then you have um, Ian Fleming's James mm. Bond novels, of course. Taken yes, on they've by been other taken. People. You know, all sorts of people uh, have written those. Kingsley Amis wrote one. William Boyd wrote a James Bond novel. Yeah, Anthony Horowitz has done yes, one. Yes, he's isn't done he? one. Yeah. yeah, so they they pass them on. But uh, yeah, so I mean, there is there is precedent for this, but uh, generally though the person has the writer has died, mm-hmm. you know, and it's a way of keeping it alive. Um, Jason Bourne books are still being written with uh, with Robert Ludlum's name on them, even though he left us a long time ago. Yeah. Do you have to pay a franchise or something? I mean, could I write a Jason Bourne novel, or would uh, would would that be a copyright infringement? Would oh, they they'd be all over you like yeah. a ton of bricks. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. No, you have to you have to right. negotiate that. Right. Yeah. The honor and the yeah. yeah. I suppose you're going to make a lot of money out of mm-hmm. it. Yeah, you will. You would you would you would make well, money for, for sure. So you are a thriller writer, but you also write about thrillers. And in I fact, do. Yes. In the FT today, tell yeah. us. What's there? Uh, in, well, I write a. I'm the thriller critic of the Financial Times, and every six weeks, I write a roundup of the new and interesting thrillers. And today we have four. Um, the first one is by Stephen Leather, who is an ex-newspaper reporter who used to write a series about um, an MI5 agent called Dan Shepard, which was quite. Uh, it was good, and it was quite rough and tumble, though, sort of action series. And now he's launched a new series featuring a junior MI5 agent called um, Sally Page. And it's the book is called The Runner, and she goes on the run. There's um, It's a, what we call a chase thriller. She's, she's being chased all over London. So it's a fairly uh, known format, but it's very well executed. And, the, and she's a good character. She's sort of resourceful and resilient, but also quite vulnerable in other ways. So I think it's a challenge for male writers to come up with a good female protagonist. And one thing I know in this genre is that almost all the writers and most of the protagonists are male. So it's very refreshing that Stephen Leather, who's really you know known for kind of sort of macho series before this has come up with a female protagonist and made her credible so I enjoyed that then we have Man on Edge by Humphrey Hawksley a former BBC correspondent and that's the second in a series featuring someone called Rake Ozena who's in the Alaska National Guard but really uh, it's his ex-fiancee Carrie Walker a doctor who's driving the story and Rake's sort of coming in to help her so although he's technically the protagonist because uh, it's part of a series about him, she's—I would say she's really the protagonist, mm. and that's that's very well done. Humphrey Hawkley's an uh, extremely experienced BBC correspondent, so it's popping up all over the place in Murmansk and in Moscow, and you can see that he kind of knows these places. Good scene setting. Then uh, we have Gerald Seymour in Beyond Recall, which is about 
a British Special Forces soldier who's been traumatised in Syria and is now taking refuge in the Orkneys and then goes back to Russia on a mission. Uh, I mean, this is on the book jacket, so it's not giving too much away <laughs> to get the person who carried out the atrocity. It's uh, it's very it's very well engineered, but a lot of Gerald Seymour books do have tend to have these sort of middle aged, haunted, extremely depressed protagonists, mm. and it gets a bit sort of it's a bit like <laughs> treading through sludge after a while. You know, you think Gerald, we've, we've done the, we've done the middle aged man who's seen or done something terrible and is seeking redemption. You know. Let's move on from that. Uh, tell us about the German book or the German storyline book. Yes, uh, Chris Petit, um, a, a filmmaker and novelist, is absolutely fascinated by the Third Reich, as so many of us are. And he's doing a, a very interesting series uh, where his protagonist is a Gestapo officer called Schlegel. And in this one, Mr. Wolf, uh, Schlegel, is sort of caught up in the aftermath of the July 1944 bomb plot. And he's basically trying to survive. He's not really, he's not a believing Nazi, which is why we, we end up rooting for him. He's just someone who's sort of caught up in this world and has to do certain things to survive, but is, you know, is more or less a good guy. Definitely echoes their Philip Kerr's series with Gunther. Um, the Berlin cop slash private eye. Mm. Uh, although he's a more obviously good guy protagonist, he's a more hard-boiled detective. But still, he Gunther uh, ends up on the you know on the Eastern Front, you know, not far from pretty hideous things happening down the road that he can hear very clearly. So mm. he is part of the machine. So you see this ambivalence here, and which is why these books are interesting. Is what would we do? In that's what that's what they're asking. Mm. What would you do? It's really interesting to talk about Philip Kerr, who, of course, mm. wrote, I think, more than 30 books. I mean, yes. absolutely huge. And, yeah, and, huge. Um, uh, and and his, that series featuring mm. Gunter, uh, uh, Bernie Gunter is um, yeah. it's kind of historical yeah. detective thrillers, but but really, really big. Now, he, of course, tragically died uh, quite yes, recently. very young. Yeah. Uh, um, in, in 2018. Now, he was married to uh, Jane Thin. Yes. Uh, yeah. And, in fact, she's got a brand new book out. It's called The words I never wrote it's a novel and it's a um, again it's, it's a it's a story of two sisters on opposite sides of World War two uh, and so what what do you think Simon is this fascination with with World War two in in literature I mean we're constantly coming back to it it is funny isn't it I think as you know as you were saying Adam there's a fascination with the Third Reich and I think to some extent um, obviously there's the for thriller it's great isn't it because of the, the element of real visceral danger we know that some really evil people would do some terrible things to you if they caught you but i think generally there's a there's a feeling of just what on earth happened what why did one of the most civilized advanced uh, countries of the world go through this madness how did it happen could it happen again and um just how did those individuals uh do those acts of most appalling brutality and cruelty and i think that that is probably why we're fascinated about it and i suppose especially at the moment when there is so much economic and political uncertainty isn't there the rise of populism of nationalism and stuff i think there's always a fear in the back of people's minds isn't there that but we could, could do that again. yeah absolutely are we on the run-up to something like this again is that why we like thrillers though because there is they give us some certainty they always give us a resolution at the end of the the book Yes, I think so. I mean, a thriller, a good, a good thriller. Now I've I've read an awful lot of them and written several. I mean, there is a kind of basic secret formula here. You take a flawed but sympathetic hero, you make them confront their inner demons, 
and seek redemption for something bad they did in the past, but don't make it too gloomy like Gerald Seymour. <laughs> <coughs> Excuse it's me. Got to, so the, the, it's got to resonate with the Yeah, it's got to resonate. Yeah. And then they go to the very depths when it looks like it's all going to go horribly wrong and they're going to get killed or they've been taken prisoner or something. Then they come out of it and they emerge victorious but bruised and wiser. But they are essentially a sympathetic person because what that does is it resonates with all of our daily lives in that we all face obstacles things we have to sort out, things which might... OK, most of us don't face physical danger, but, you know, we, we face stressful things that we have to deal with, and then we come through them and we find a resolution, and then a little while later something else comes along, because that's life. Life is dealing with, you know, difficult situations and obstacles as well as all the happy times. So that's why we like thrillers. I mean, it goes right back, you know, to the Odyssey, to, try, you know, trying to get home and... and, and making your way through the sea and all the dangers and all the monsters and everything. It's a, it's a, it's something that's very deep within and us. And is that one reason I was wondering why quite often with a detective, with a police officer, they will be sacked or taken off the case or something? Yes. You know, usually... Yes, you have to have an obstacle. Horribly, yeah, yeah, horribly wrong at yeah. some point. And usually Death. a personal stake. So that's why you'll often see in crime books, the detective is a very good uh, format for this because the detective's job is to solve a case and there's going to be obstacles along the way. But you, you'll often see, you know... And 30 years, a cold case from 30 years ago has come back to haunt him. And then you need a personal stake. So it'll be a cold case come back to haunt him or her that actually their brother, mother or cousin was involved with. Because just watching someone do their job all the time is not so interesting. So you need a personal stake in there. Thank you so much, Adam and Simon. Adam Labour and Simon Brook. Uh, that's all for today. I'm not going to tell you what's going to happen next because we like to leave these things a bit exactly. of a cliffhanger. I'm so excited. Yeah. <laughs> you have to listen Heart to the end man. to hear the resolution. Yeah. Our supervising producer was Ben Ryland. Our researcher was Tia Thomas-Alexander. Our studio manager was Nora Hall. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. Do stay tuned because we will have another bit of the story coming up in a little while. Thank you.